this is Rob Paulson, a.k.a. Yakko Warner, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for November 9th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hassenflau, Steve. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. And if you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. This week, Chip, Halloween is over. We're into November and uh, the time changed. And I, I'm not sure what time it is, Chip. <laughs> Steve, this is the week that we recognize all those veterans out there and thank mm-hmm. them for their service. Yeah, wonderful Veterans Day coming up Thursday, November 11th. Thank you to all of our veterans. That's 1111, uh, Steve, for yeah. those keeping at home. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Chip, you went to a movie theater and saw the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe masterpiece, The Eternals. I did. I went to The Eternals. I saw it at the Regal, which is right around the corner from me. And I would say it wasn't packed. No. But it was, uh, we had a good sized crowd. In fact, I had one seat in between, just enough to social distance. And I sat next to, like, I guess about an 18-year-old. And he was like, I love these movies. And I was like, I think I know why you love these movies. Because if um, these came out in the 1970s, we'd be watching Star Wars with Steve. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they came out uh, in the year 2000 or so, we'd be watching Harry Potter, but not with Steve. That's right. (laughs) Very, very valid. There's something about that. Right. Yeah, for, for young people right now, the MCU is certainly the the great story, and we'll 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 um we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Eternals, and it's gotten sort of uh, this is they're saying it's the first um, movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that got a bad review. Now, now Thor, one of the Thor movies, uh, was not received real well, but the Kenneth Branagh one. Yeah, but yeah. the the Eternals, I, I don't understand why, because I thought the movie was very, very good. Uh, let me go ahead and give it a, a number. Let's just say it's um, 65 out of 100. There are a lot of new characters that are brought into this. These are unknown characters, not any different than the Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay. Marvel has held these has been a steward of these for you know a long time certainly has done a very good job at it they've got a wonderful cast that they put together uh a lot of i mean basically there's two people from um game of thrones at least i saw uh yeah and see if it was british i mean you'd know all the uh, actors but this is not this is um this is american and since you brought think- that up weeks ago that we are now british because we only have these 18 actors that appear in all of our fantasy and sci-fi movies that's all i could think of is, is yes we have these are the actors that's all we get <laughs> salma hayek uh angela jolie <laughs> yes of course they're gonna be in this. of course they are all right, so for, a little bit different from the comic in the sense that they were able to 
recast and uh for one of the characters sprite they changed the sex of the of the character so the idea behind the eternals is um well let me back up jack kirby who wrote this comic that this was uh based upon did not intend the eternals to be part of the regular marvel universe hmm. eventually it was folded into it there was a way to do that but he was inspired by chariots of the gods which was really big in the 70s look eric von donen are you familiar with that steve no that's you have to tell me more about the chariots of the gods well you, you know what if you've watched any of the history channel because steve the history channel shows ancient aliens right mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway because that's history of course <laughs> <laughs> why not but anyway uh basically ancient aliens um uh, but it, but the 1970s for a version of it and if you okay. want to look up and watch chariot of the gods you can see what the inspiration was this is before humans existed uh, a group um came to earth basically killed off the apex predators um and um helped create the evolution that would be that would make what became humans okay. and once humans became smart enough steve then um the the twist was um that there would something would happen to the earth and i'm afraid of giving away too much of this because this is a really interesting story there's a number of philosophical ideas that you can play around with within your mind hmm. Because, um, I mean, on the simplest level, let's think about every time you sit down and have dinner, Steve, and you have your, um, your vegetables on one side and you have your meats on, on the other. And what we've learned recently is vegetables actually do have, um, potentially have a conscience. But anyway, the idea is you've, you've eaten an animal. Mm -hmm. um, so an animal or, or a vegetable, life has given you life. Mm-hmm. Now, is that okay? That's the system that we live in. I, I, I think that that okay. is, is that just part of nature. That that's okay. Yeah. Is that just part of nature? I think so. Okay. So the idea behind this is something much grander than that. Is that life gives life, mm -hmm. and uh, the question gets asked is, if something happened to the Earth, I mean, is it okay to destroy all the ants? You know that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So there is uh, some big questions that are asked, and and there are other ones that that are played around with. And this is sort of a, a story beyond good and bad, beyond you know good and evil. So we we're talking sort of on some really high concepts, and that's where it could have kind of lost some of the reviewers that I, I was kind of reading. Mm -hmm. I, like I said, I, I like this film. I do think that there are a lot of characters in it. It is crowded. Um, they did introduce a, a few scenes that have made it banned in some markets, which were not necessarily needed, but certainly very much Disney and of its time, which, mm. you know, there's nothing wrong with what's really going on. I do think that the, uh, the director made a few interesting choices because as you're watching this, you, you can watch it on a number of, of levels. You can watch it one on a superhero film. There's a lot of characters. There's some action going on. You can watch it also for its visual cues. And this is where I, I'm going to um, 
just throw this out there. So if you're familiar with art, you know, you can, you can pick out some different um, pictures out there. Andrew Wyeth's Christina's World, the young lady who is on the ground, kind of looking at a house in the distance across a field. Um, yes, that the, there is a scene that you can just pull it right. You're going like, this is familiar. I know this. I know this. And like, oh, there it is. Hmm. And at Edward Hopper's um, Nighthawks was another one that you, you're immediately going, I know that picture. I know that picture. Uh, and you go, oh, I've seen that. And then this is one that I'm pulling from, and it could be just kind of a wild pull. But do you remember um, Windows XP, the uh, the picture they had in the, in the background, the bliss? The green field and the blue sky, is that the one? Yes. Yeah. I think that is, I think I ran across that in this film too. Now, I, I'm, I'm just watching it for the first time. So I certainly could have missed a bunch of others. But I'm, I'm telling you that the, um, the director certainly was playing with the audience there and just kind of giving some, some nods to those like in the know type of okay. thing. So some imagery, some uh, large questions about life and philosophy and superheroes so this movie's got everything yeah and it's got some twists in it so if you you know i don't want to give away the entire story because i do think that experiencing it means that this is when you come by what is good and evil um and it, or is there a time where it's above that and possibly possibly there is hmm. so um the, the last thing i want to mention is that there were two teasers at the end so you got a teaser as soon as the movie ended and then you watch the credits and you got a final teaser. Mm -hmm. um, it is setting up our next film. Great. Um, and then I will say that there was something that wasn't mentioned here, but I immediately thought of. And what we are introduced in this film is to the idea of the Celestials. And the Celestials were the group that introduced the Eternals into our world to help us evolve to the point where, you know, what they were setting up could happen. And uh, I immediately thought of Galactus, which is a, a character that was created by Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby uh, was asked by Stan Lee, he goes, what if the Fantastic Four fought God? And uh, that was the character they came up with. Galactus is a world eater who basically comes to a world and consumes it for power so that it can survive and uh it arrives at uh to the earth and the fantastic four must defeat this character mm -hmm. um to have the world survive so um th the question i had was you know is galactus a celestial or similar i seem to have found a an article out there and so if you have interest in, in learning a little bit more about th this uh, story, I think that that would be one that potentially could be in the burner. And the final thing I, I want to mention is for those of you out there that have knowledge of religion, in fact, any of the world's religions, you have um, knowledge of mythology and um, knowledge of um, sort of some of the pseudo histories out there, the ancient aliens and things of that nature you're going to be well rewarded in this film because it plays a lot. In fact, I, when I got home and I was getting ready to go to bed, 
I actually listened to a little bit of a, a talk on the Emerald Tablet of Toth. So um, anyway, like I said, mm. there's there's plenty to glean from this. If you if you are a person who has interest in any of those, and if not, you just want to go watch a, a superhero film. There you go. You got you got yourself a busy one. Got everything that you need right there in the Eternals. Uh, I have not made it to the movie theater to see this one, but I will eventually get a chance to see Marvel's latest. Steve, I was not the only person who got to see a film this week. You got to watch one on Apple TV+. Plus. Yes, I immediately, as soon as it was available, watched Finch. This is a movie that we talked about last week. This is Tom Hanks in a post-apocalyptic Earth building a robot to protect the life of his dog. And I got to tell you, Chip, if we were voting right now for the film of the year, this would be my... Academy Award winning film. Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks, being that castaway loner character that we love watching him just chew the scenery. This is the performance of 2021. Tom well, Hanks. Steven, is the dog's name Wilson? No, no, the dogs, this is not, okay, it's not exactly Castaway, but it, it's certainly reminiscent of that movie. We loved watching Tom Hanks survive in Castaway, and watching him survive in this post-apocalyptic situation is just as intriguing. He is this character who doesn't really like people. He's an introvert. And the conversations that he gets to have with this robot that he creates, the, the voice, by the way, of the robot is Caleb Landry Jones, who you don't recognize that name. That is not a name that you recognize, but his voice is very reminiscent of Alan Tudyk's work as K2SO in Star Wars Rogue One. Remember Rogue One with the, the sassy robot? This robot is very similar. Not as sassy, maybe, but the idea of being... Steve, a Steve the, the robot of the year is Taka Watiti's uh, uh, robot from uh, Mandalorian. Um... He always wants to blow himself up, Steve. That was a very entertaining robot. This robot is much more in-depth thinking about what it's like to be alive. Yes, Taika Waititi's robot wanted to not be alive. This one is is thinking about what it means to be a parent, what it means to be responsible for another being, what it means to survive in a situation where I'm not sure that you would want to survive. The Tom Hanks character here is is alone. And again, back to... Are, are you ever alone when you're with your dog, Steve? <laughs> yes. Yes, you are still alone even when you're with your dog. The the conversation that he has about the desire to be alone, I was thinking a lot about his big library of books that he's collected in this story. He has time enough at last to read all the books. I hope he has all the uh, spectacles. I mean, more than one pair, just in case. They didn't even bring spectacles into the conversation on this. They didn't have him break his glasses just as he was about to read all of his books. But the idea of the apocalypse 
being alone, being separate from everybody, and actually enjoying that, this character embraces it, finds a way to build this robot from parts that he scavenges to protect his dog, because he knows at some point that he's, he's going to die. The thoughtfulness of this character examining what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, and trying to give that to another creature, this is this is the most touching movie of 2021. I, I would vote, if I was voting right now, this would be my favorite movie of the year. Produced by Robert Zemeckis, by the way. This is, this is high level. This is maybe the best thing Apple TV has put out. Well, my assumption is they bought the rights to it. Apple has resources Mm -hmm. to be a force. And certainly COVID gave them an opportunity to purchase some of the uh, movies out there. This was probably a wonderful one to to purchase. I sat down to watch this on Friday night. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up watching another one, which I will not mention. That was a little bit, yeah, it just wasn't probably as good. So anyway, Fitch is um, one that I will check out. I recommend this very highly. Anyone that loved District 9, do you remember District 9 from 2009? That I was the South African apartheid metaphor where the robots were the ones that were being uh, discriminated against is the is the nice word. District Say a cat food, Steve. Yeah. District 9 was an amazing film with amazing special effects. Now, here we are, what? 12 years later, the special effects in this movie are spectacular. You don't think about any of it. You think, okay, that's a man talking to a robot. There is no moment where I go, how did they do that? It doesn't matter. The story takes over. This is a great film. Hey, Steve, are there any um, shows that maybe you watch that would make maybe some of us cringe? Uh, yes, there are two on my list of cringeworthy <laughs> materials to go over this week. The first is Hello, Jack, The Kindness Show. This is, again, on Apple TV. This is Jack McBrayer, who has created a preschool show, bringing preschoolers into a world where, you know, a little act of kindness can change the world. This is what I've been hoping for for a long time. The world needs more kindness. And Mr. Rogers was that person for me on television in the 70s and 80s. And Jack McBrayer is trying to be that person here on Apple TV. Well, I, I watched the uh, the previous, Dave, and it kind of looks like a um, SNL sketch. It does. It it comes off as disingenuous. It comes off as Jack McBrayer trying very hard to be that that next Mister Rogers. And I see what he's trying to do, and I don't think that it's necessarily successful. It because it doesn't come off as the caring person that we need right now there's just something that's just not connecting on it Mm -hmm. and i i i would like to articulate it but i just can't it just is um it's the pastel colors it's the uh, environment it is um the the messaging is, is fine the delivery is what is i don't know certainly unique mm-hmm. um Blue's Clues, Door of the Explorer, certainly were much more skilled at this. 
that's the kind of level that I was kind of looking yeah. for. And for something, it's just not there. It's just not there. Anyway, it is called Hello, Jack, the kind of show. Steve, what we really need is some kind of artificial intelligence to show us how to write a movie. That's, that will solve all of our problems. If AI would just kick in and write movies for us, uh, oh, wait, they've already made that happen. There's an AI that has written several short movies. The The one that just came out this week is called Mr. Puzzles Wants You to Be Less Alive. This is a four-minute horror movie purportedly written by an AI, and boy, is it hilariously terrible <laughs> and, and just filled with so many misunderstandings. Like, the AI does not understand language well enough to make a movie yet. <laughs> well, and, and that's a good point um artificial intelligence does not mean smart correct artificial intelligence is just making choices mm -hmm. and those choices certainly are interesting in this um and yeah it's it's a good example of how lovely that we have something that's artificial write something but maybe it just doesn't make any sense it, it doesn't make much sense but it's presented here by netflix and it's under the Netflix is a joke YouTube account. So this is presented to be ridiculed. This is supposed to be funny. And it's it's funny in the ineptitude of the writing. Humans still need to be in charge of writing for sure, for at least a little while. Steve, let's talk about what's coming up this week. Yeah, let's start with the calendar. It is early November, and those Best Picture nominees are certainly coming out. The first one for your consideration is Belfast. This is directed by Kenneth Branagh, and it is the story of a working-class family in Ireland in the late 1960s. In Northern Ireland, Steve, it sounds like there could be an accent going on. There are certainly accents available for you to, to use for this movie. It is presented in black and white. 1960s, Kenneth Branagh using his artistic direction to make a black and white picture about Belfast. Blue diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> And so I, bet my, I bet me luck and charms this is going to be pretty good, Steve. And Big Red Dogs. No, that's a different movie. Clifford the Big Red Dog is making its live-action debut this week as well. Uh, this one, it looks fine. This this looks like a, a fine children's movie to, to think about caring about another. Uh, I look forward to hearing about it. <laughs> so this is based on the uh, children's book, the, mm -hmm. uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog or at least it's inspired by it. Uh, John Ritter, uh, who was the cartoon for, I guess, PBS, mm -hmm. uh, voice of Clifford the Big Red Dog. He's no longer with us. But I saw this preview when I saw The Eternals, mm -hmm. and um, I didn't have high hopes for it until I saw the preview. And all of a sudden I said, there could be something here. So if I had a young person, mm -hmm. maybe this would be the film I would go see. It's interesting that they're releasing it in November, that, that they have really high expectations for this film. This seems to be more like a summer release to me, like kids would go to the movies to watch this. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, a lot of this has to do with COVID, I'm sure. That's Steve, true. do we have any films by actors who like just to phone it in? <laughs> 
Bruce Willis, Chip. Bruce, Bruce Willis's latest terrible film is called Apex. <laughs> Please, God, may there be some kind of award for this. I'm not talking about Razzie. But what, what we need is an Academy Award for, like, best worst actor. Bruce Maybe Willis. it's a Christmas movie. Maybe <laughs> Apex is a Christmas movie that we'll watch annually, like Die Hard. So the premise of this is he's a man. I guess he's gotten out of prison, but he can get out if he if he's willing to be hunted. But when the hunted goes out, he becomes the hunter. So uh, Bruce Willis is going to be that character. He's an old man who's playing a young man's game, Steve. Yippee Kaye. <laughs> this looks awful. It does. It's 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 terrible. Well, I'll probably watch it. It's it seems ripe for riff tracks. So, Steve, when we when we suggest that everyone go to therapy, and we want a uh, cautionary tale about therapy, is there yeah. like a show out there that we could watch this week? Yeah, this one's interesting. This is The Shrink Next Door. This is, once again, an Apple TV Plus production. This is Paul Rudd as that psychiatrist that maybe you need to be very cautious with your choice of who you share your information with. The stand-in for us in The Shrink Next Door is Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell is the patient. Paul Rudd is the psychiatrist. And uh, the bizarre relationship, the really cringy conversation, the, the interesting fact about this is that it's an eight-episode series. This is not a two-hour movie. This sounds to me like it should be a two-hour movie. In addition to that, this is not at least presented as a comedy. Now, it could be, Correct. but I don't think it is. Maybe um, Will Ferrell, if you remember him from Stranger Than Fiction, where mm -hmm. he played more of a, a straight character, which certainly is not his strength. But he did very good, very a very good job there, but... Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell have history of being in movies together, but mm -hmm. where I will say that this is, it is an interesting choice to make an eight episode um, series as opposed it's... to a single movie. Yeah. This also reminds me of Love and Mercy, and this is about the Beach Boys leader, Brian Wilson, and his challenging relationship with his therapist, Eugene Landy. And that came out in 2014. Once again, these are these are both cautionary tales of of, hmm. of sort of the boundaries and, and the divide that should be between the patient and the therapist. But you know what? Maybe maybe there's something to it, Steve. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. You have been delving deep into the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the Eternals this week, so you got yourself a book called All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. This was published in October of this year by Douglas Wolk. It is, and this is a story that just came out, so it's a, you know, right on the top of the edge, Steve. There you um, go. This popped up on my Amazon feed, and I, I picked it up. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is certainly probably the hottest property that we have out there. Certainly, it is an incredible... By the time it's finished, there are probably 50 movies that have been intertwined together. And this was based on Marvel Comics that started basically in 1961 with the publication of The Fantastic Four. Now... 
Douglas Wolk um, suggests that it could have started earlier than that. Interestingly enough, with a bunch of what are they called? Maybe romance or nurse comics. Maybe a couple mm-hmm. years earlier, because those those series had crossovers. And they had a world where they worked together. Eventually, they were worked into the Marvel Universe. And that was through Night Nurse, interestingly enough, Steve. Okay. So it could have started a little earlier. And those, um, the Marvel Universe was, was at, least, at least initially, the concepts were Stanley, who was our um, boisterous uh, writer with the snappy dialogue and the happy um, prose. And then we had our, our storytellers, which were uh, Jack Kirby and Steve Didko, who drew these comics and basically went from a, maybe a loose outline from a discussion they had with uh, Stan Lee. And so this is, from, from the beginning of this story, all the characters that we know and love were introduced. So from Fantastic Four, we get the Hulk, and we get the we get Spider Man, we get Thor, we get the Avengers, and of eventually they keep working and working and working. And what our author does is talk a little bit about the characters, a little bit about the stories that were created. So if you ever wanted to have a high overview of the stories. And then how those stories were all connected. So this is not about how to build a comic book. This is not about the writers and the artists or anything like that. This really is a book celebrating the work that they put together. And one of the uh, the notes that as they're trying to sell you the book is it's the longest continuous self-contained work of fiction ever created. Over a half million pages to date and still growing. Hmm. So, you know, think about Lord of the Rings or think about uh, Star Wars, think about Harry Potter, but now just throw a whole bunch of writers to work together and they're, they kind of loosely are putting things together. One of the, um, the fun parts about this is you can imagine with so many people writing and so many people drawing these stories that not everything kind of jives up together real easily. And so there's a couple things that some writers will eventually come in and correct that, you know, what was going on that period of time that just things weren't Mm -hmm. connected real well. But the other was, is that the readers and readers like, you know, George R.R. Martin would write in and say, hey, listen, something's going on with this. They were kids at that time. For those who are not familiar with George R.R. Martin, he wrote Game of Thrones. So anyway, um, so Stanley came up with a solution to this. He would send you an envelope which contained the no prize. Are you familiar with that, Steve? No, this is news to me. Tell me all about this. A no prize was like, oh, you found something wrong with our stories. They didn't really kind of mesh up real well. So we're going to send you an envelope with nothing in it, but we've awarded you a no prize. Um, (laughs) And so there was always this playful banner between like the reader and the um, the writers and the uh, the artists. Now, later on, many of those people who wrote and had their letters published, they were kids. They got to take over the stories. And this is where it gets really, really interesting because they didn't come in as, you know, 
seasoned creators or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They came in as lovers of those characters. And Mm -hmm. that's where we got this super explosion in the 70s. Now, in the 70s, Jim Starlin gave us characters like Thanos, you know, who loved death and death was the mistress. And mm-hmm. so what would he could, what could he do to cheat death and to earn her love? And that was what drove him. Now, Thanos's brother was Eros, which um, was, you know, he had a character <laughs> potentially problematic. Certainly he, he provided pleasure to many people, Steve. Um, but anyway, he was a character there. So the work got you know, bigger and the stories got bigger. Jack Kirby came in in the 70s and gave us the Eternals, which um, eventually were worked into the Marvel Universe. They gave us the Celestials and potentially as the birthplace of the universe and, and the, the custodians of the universe. Um, and then we move forward through the 80s, through the 90s, and then through the 2000s, and we start getting really the, the, the stories move from these great big ideas to very character-driven ideas. And he spent a lot of time talking about like, a writer named Brian Bendis, who uh, wrote something that certainly is going to come part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is going to be the Shrulls. And we've already been introduced to the Kree through Captain Marvel, but the Skrulls are the group that was at war with the Kree. Mm-hmm. And uh, they tend to be shapeshifters, and they come in and they're certain people. And you don't know who is a Skrull and who isn't a Skrull. And so there will be, at some point, something introduced into our stories that we may question, like, hey, was that really Spider-Man? Well, maybe it isn't Spider-Man. Maybe it is a scroll. So hmm. anyway, this is going to be fascinating. Um, I enjoyed this book. It, it's certainly a light read. A, a person who has a lot of passion for the work and a lot of passion for the stories. He is not a collector. He is a reader. And uh, he um, talks about how he spent that time. He said, I always wondered if I could connect with my son. His son is a um, kind of an introvert, kind of a a different person than this gentleman was. He goes, I just didn't know if I was going to be a good dad. And eventually they found a connection reading the comic books together. And uh, one of the questions that keeps getting asked uh, throughout the book is, hey, listen, if I wanted to learn about these characters, where would I start? And the question is, is start wherever you'd like to. So if you like Mm -hmm. Spider-Man, read Spider-Man. If you like Captain America, go read Captain America. If you like Black Panther, read Black Panther. At some point, you'll say, oh, Black Panther appeared in Fantastic Four. Maybe I'll read a little bit about the Fantastic Four. And if you find that that is resonating with you, then maybe the Fantastic Four introduces you to some other group, maybe the Inhumans or something. So maybe you go and read about the Inhumans. And the Inhumans, uh, you know, kind of spark your interest and go, oh, maybe I should read about the Kree. And the Kree introduce you to Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel is at the, uh, the uh, there was a war between the, the Shrulls and the, the Kree that happened to the Avengers, and maybe it works your way through the Avengers. Eventually, you kind of meander your way, and you get more and more knowledge of this grand story. And the beautiful part is, is that you only have to be part of the things that you find of interest. So 
fascinating, fascinating book. Once again, a very, very light, pleasant read. And if you have interest in this world, I would highly recommend it. And it's interesting how all of those time periods of the writing link up to the history of our country and and our planet. Those metaphors for why those writers wrote those characters at those times. The metaphors for the Cold War and the Atomic Age where we get the the mutants. There's there's so much wrapped up in that long, long history of Marvel. All of those stories and and going forward, I, I I'm excited to see what will happen with all of those stories. Well, what we should also mention though is that many of those stories get reinterpreted. So when we have Iron Man introduced, and it certainly is something that from a, a past war, what well, has mm-hmm. to be reinterpreted uh, because the, the Marvel Universe only takes place during a particular, you know, maybe for ten to fifteen years, and. Okay. It always is a sliding time scale. So you got to kind of slip with it a little bit because what was the Vietnam War? Could it could be, you know, um, something that happened in Iraq? Could mm-hmm. have been something that happened, you know, whatever the period of time that they want to pick. You know, it's always a slip of time. They'll reinterpret it to make sure it remains fresh. Just like they're trying to do with The Simpsons, to try to make The Simpsons relatively interesting to the 2021 audience. They go, oh, you remember uh, 20 years ago when it was the year 2000, not 20 years ago when we started, when it was 1969, that that sliding scale. They're trying that very, very (laughs) interestingly with The Simpsons. It's not working. As Flight of the Concord said, the distant future, the year 2000. Right. <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing to look back at all of the journey that that has been the Marvel writing since 1961 and and to think forward about what writing looks like in the future. Uh, I, I I think I could could really get into this book. That's all of the Marvels, a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told by Douglas Wolk. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. Uh, Chip, do you like podcasts? I do like podcasts. Steve, I need you. You are our dear friend, Mr. Stephen Fodor. Lent his expertise to a podcast this week. And I, what podcast was it, Steve? And what did you guys talk about? I went on a wrestling podcast, Chip. Two Marks and a Spark. Our good friend Ben Shrewsbury has a wrestling podcast. He loves the storytelling and the the all of the artistry that goes into the wrestling world. And I I went on and as, and as an expert in wrestling, Steve, you went on. I, I am not a wrestling expert. What we discussed on this show, because he's got a an interesting format where he sometimes talks about wrestling and sometimes talks about the state of America. And what we talked about was education and caring and empathy in America and how we adults sometimes, I used your quote, sometimes we're the Luke Skywalker and sometimes we're the Obi-Wan Kenobi. And when I talked to Ben, he's he's that young man who's 
starting out his adult life, and I was trying to to give him a little boost to show him what it's like. He, he's a young to, man, Steve. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we're the Harry Potter, and then sometimes we're the Dumbledore. Just just make sure he can understand. I'm mostly the Hagrid. <laughs> just the dope that walks in and goes, "I'm got a, I've got a dragon." that's that's all i've got that's all i know about harry potter this was a great conversation you can find it on any of your favorite podcatchers two marks and a spark is the name of ben's show you read a, a fantastic paper a real like professional paper this week this is mobile internet and political polarization by nikita melenkov he is a phd candidate from princeton so one of my favorite blogs is Marginal Revolution, and Tyler Cowen, who is a professor of economics, is one of the people who runs this site. And he said, this is my favorite paper this year. And uh, it is a fascinating paper because what it basically talks a little bit about, at least what Melnikoff is trying to, to show, is how mobile internet has affected political polarization in the United States. Now, that seems like a, a lot to take in there. Now, one mm-hmm. of the things that, that Coleman talks about is like, read every single sentence to, to, uh, to, to understand what's going on. But basically what Melnikoff is trying to say is after gaining access to 3G internet, so internet that is reliable and, and fast, okay, mm-hmm. um, Democratic voters became more liberal in their political views. So Democratic doesn't necessarily mean Republican, but it could be. But they become more liberal in their political views, and they increase their support for Democratic congressional candidates and policy priorities, while Republican voters shifted in opposite directions. Now, you're saying, well, okay, so why did the Republicans shift in an opposite direction? So Democratic people who are who typically are more American liberal became mm-hmm. more progressive, I would say. But the people who are consider, we consider more conservative, which may or may not be the right word for that, Republicans tend to be moving in the opposite direction. And it was because of the information that, that they were consuming. Like the people who were Republican, they tended to just, I don't know, put their foot in the sand is what it, what the the uh, statement, uh, or at least that's kind of what I'm reading it. And they're just like contrarian to this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want change. Well, the people who are more progressive are very comfortable with, with change. Sure. Now, that seems, could that be because of the, of the social networks that they're working on. And uh, Malikoff doesn't think so. What it's showing is that the news consumption of those groups tends to sort of impact them, particularly on the more liberal group. And that would be CNN. One of the things that, that also was pulled from this was that the wealthier we became with the more education that we had, we tend to be more liberal. While if we're poor and uneducated, we tend to be more conservative. We don't want the change. We don't want, we tend to want to stay with maybe what we would consider traditional at that point. And that is, that is also interesting because, you know, think about the people who become wealthier. They're, they're the job, they, they make the jobs. They hire the people. And think about who are the people who are, are poor 
um, they tend to have fewer choices available to them, but also more skeptical of when those, those things take place. So this is looking at those years between 2008 and 2017, where, where the proliferation of 3G wireless internet became much more prolific, that everybody, it seems, has access to this data, this information through this mobile situation. And it's very interesting that as we get that information through these methods, we move toward the the possibly more liberal side of thinking. Yeah, and I, I may have mixed this up. Now, Cowan made a commentary. I'm just going to read it because um, he goes, my read, that is Tyler Cowan's read, not the author's read uh, of the results, is that mobile internet polarized the left, but not so much the right. What polarized the right was the polarization of the left and not the mobile internet. I mean... I mean, there's just, there's so much to think about with this. I mean, if you have interest in it, it's linked in our notes. And certainly mm -hmm. you can go and you can kind of click on it. You can click on the original article, and, um, the paper, excuse me, and, and read about the paper. But I, 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 find, I find this fascinating because many people think that, the, you know, the world is incredibly divided right now. And, you know, the question is, is, is why is that so? We, we say tend to be incredibly wealthy when compared to the past. Opportunities are greater for us than, you know, for many of our ancestors in the past. Things, I mean, are, are, are relatively good across the board. Now, perfect, it's never perfect. And certainly our standards and scales change over time. I mean, when the poor have refrigerators and television and all these things available to them, you know, compared to 100 years ago, everyone looks wealthy. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, certainly our standards of what is we'd like to have changes quite a bit. So I, I, I find this or these types of insights just wonderful uh, ticklers of the brain and certainly things to consider. And one thing that we've talked about a lot is is how social media has changed the landscape. And this paper seems to really say that social media is not the issue. It's not about that echo chamber, although that plays a part in this. So Mark Zuckerberg absolutely agrees with this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Social in fact, he media meta is not agrees the issue. with this. He meta agrees with this. Oh, meta boy. meta time. He's gone very meta on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to think about that access to data, not necessarily that social media data, but all data. As we see cultures around the world getting into the mobile internet, that access to knowledge, that world's instruction manual that is YouTube right now can change everything and what changes with it according to this paper according to this very smart person is maybe our views on how to do things well and I, I think that something that Steve and I may miss and certainly some of our listeners may miss is the more you get used to using our friend the internet you know, our tool, our, our, our tool that tells us what we have to do and when we need to do it. Mm -hmm. more um, we get to use it, the more knowledgeable and empowered we can be. And many times we sit down with people who just haven't had that epiphany yet. 
And they're still working off information that maybe was introduced to you 10 or 15 years ago. Hmm. And you go, wow, you know, it's like a whole different world out there for them. But for us who at least have had, we've grown with the internet and my goodness, our kids have grown up with the internet. The question is, is learning to use the knowledge as your tool so that you can get to do the things that you want to do. How do I build something? Oh, I can go to the internet and find out. I don't know something about this disease. What do I do? Well, I go to the internet and I can read about it. Now, it doesn't give you the wisdom of every you know, nuance of something, but certainly information's out there. And the more you read about it, the more you learn about information, the more you can become a better expert on that. I, I immediately see it. Steve and I are, are part of a, uh, a site where we monitor our calories, what we take in each day. And even though calories may not be the right tool, it's just something to measure. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to, to look at our activity every day. And the idea is we want to be healthier with lower weight. And for a period of time uh, where we're really tight on it, things get much better. And then we get a loose on it and you know, we can go back the opposite way. Mm-hmm. But my point being is that not everybody knows that those tools like that are available or have a person out there that kind of can show them how to do it or can go on the journey with them. And that is a great example of where some of us kind of are plugged in and some of us are, you know, or just are not. And I think that this group that's poor, um, they just haven't learned to use this tool as well, except for maybe to put a, you know, a couple of riots together here and there. There's lots of information out there and being aware of where your information comes from is something that we talk about a lot in class. That ability for my students to disseminate between good information and bad information, biased information, all information is biased and understanding that bias is important as well. So let's, let's bring up this Wall Street Journal article. It just came out just a few days ago. And it says, please stop pressuring kids to join social media. Mm-hmm. And it talks a little bit about, you know, you're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a club leader. And what do you want things to do? You, you want to look like you have activity going on and you say, hey, Steve, little Steve, what, you know, put this activity, put it on your Instagram account or put, put it on your um you know, social media, like WhatsApp or, or um, well, kids don't use Facebook, but, but you know, whatever, did. whatever those kids do, TikTok, whatever they end up putting mm-hmm. their stuff on to avoid their parents. Um, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of, first thing, we, we want to have group knowledge and mm-hmm. group activity, but we're also kind of pushing a young person into a world mm-hmm. they just may not be ready to go to yet. And that's the challenging part for me as that coach, as that club leader, as that teacher. I need to go where the kids are to give them the information that they need for success. But pushing them into a world that that they don't really understand and are not prepared for, that can be very dangerous. We've seen so many articles about Instagram and how it is harmful to children to have these not correct views of what other people are doing in their world that's uh that's problematic 
Well, here's the here's the quote I took from it. That certainly this is a person who is uh, an expert on this. She says, "We can't sacrifice privacy and safety and kids' mental health just for the convenience that the ubiquity of these platforms offer." And that mm-hmm. certainly is a well thought out critique of what the challenges of social media are, and why it's something that you know you have to be much more conscious of, especially for parents who choose not to allow their children to, to join social media, you know, as early as middle school. And, and convenience versus security is something that we talk about in computers all the time. Having your passwords locked down in such a way that they are more difficult for you to use so that they are more difficult for somebody to steal that convenience versus security same thing with my conversations with my students through social media the ubiquity of social media it's so easy you can get into it so quickly does that make it a good thing to join those social medias well, if you're a sports team or something like that, I mean, there are things that you could use like GroupMe or um, uh, Band or something like that where you could go. The people could come in from different social media type mm-hmm. groups or or maybe even from their um, email or from text or whatever like that. And then also making sure that, you know, for a parent that they could set the um, – they could set uh, the different settings into – the, the different apps out there. But the, mm-hmm. the real challenge with that is we're assuming that all the parents understand how to set those uh, Right. You know, how savvy settings. are the parents that are teaching the kids? How, how important is that to the education of the students? Well, for a large group of parents, the, uh, the kids basically run the show. They, they set the, um, they set the settings. They set the settings for the parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's quite a few of those in my school for sure. Oh, I can't wait for these kids to grow up and have kids of their own and have their kids trying to pull that stuff because, oh, I used to do that when I was a kid. <laughs> you will not do that to me. I know how to use this stuff because they will have grown up in that world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that savviness, that where that comes from from the mobile internet and going into the social media. This is these are some ongoing conversations that we're starting here today. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. Absolutely. We would love to hear from you. What What is your feeling on all of this? Did you like the Eternals? Are you worried about social media? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. There's the social medias. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip has some flow, Steve. <laughs> we'll see you in the future. We don't talk about what I want to talk.